0: Hello there, and welcome to my podcast. I'm Connie. I'm a certified nutritionist, personal trainer, busy mom, and I live on a small hobby farm. I'm a former bodybuilder, and I currently have found a love for endurance sports, but I'm not your typical athlete. I believe there are many more contributors to athletic performance and overall health, and that we as a population might be doing it wrong. You won't see me pounding goose or chicken and rice, but you will see me in the pursuit to fuel not only athletic performance but also balance it with optimal health. This is not just a podcast for athletes. Many people that fall into the health scene get there for a reason. I found myself in suboptimal states at multiple times in my life, and it has really sparked my passion for metabolic and systemic health. I'm constantly a student of what I love, and now I hope to help others by bringing quality guests to the show to share their opinions and resources to hopefully help you formulate strategies to help you crack your health code. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I hope the last seven days has found you well. I know as usual, things are going great for me. I have been able to spend a lot of time with my family, which has been wonderful. Uh, My business is growing. I've been collaborating with a lot of amazing names in the functional health space, and it's been so awesome to get together collectively and put our knowledge in so that we can help people as a whole entity. So big things happening with all of that. I can only imagine where the future is going to take me uh, because I've I've gotten so linked up with so many amazing people uh, in this health and wellness space that are bringing their own specialties to the table. And then the other amazing thing about that is we are able to Help each other because we can't all know it all, but as a whole, we can send people the direction they need to go in order to get them help and help them achieve the results that they have been unable to achieve before, so... Lots of really good things happening there, and I'm excited to grow and learn and expand. I can't tell you how crazy this journey has been. <laughs> it's kind of funny here I was thinking of quitting my job five years ago, and i I drew it out way too long and then now that I finally did, it's like things have just totally blossomed, so I'm fortunate that I laid the foundation there. Uh, for coaching in- inquiries, just go ahead and shoot me a message from my website. I've got a lot of great stuff there. It's www.connynightingale.com. I would love to chat with you. Um, I'm really getting big into this functional health stuff, and I'm seeing some crazy awesome results with it, and I'm pretty eager to apply more and more of these methods to my current coaching modalities, and I can only imagine where that's all going to go. So, shoot me a message. You have questions. I would love to consult with you and see if we can find you some solutions. Uh, as far as today's podcast goes, I'm super excited because I have Zach Bitter joining me on the show. He's an ultra marathon runner and he holds world records for the hundred mile and 12 hour run. One thing unique about Zach is that he is a fat adapted athlete. So I know you've heard these stories on my podcast before. It's nothing new to you. Uh, But Zach and I talk a little bit about training methods, what got him uh, going as a fat adapted athlete, and then also some of the uh, modalities that he uses with his training and why he chooses to use fat for fuel rather than carbohydrates. So super interesting talk here with Zach. I'm hoping that you guys enjoy enjoy it a lot and I'm hoping that it brings value to your life. If it does, please leave me a review. Those reviews are so helpful to me, and they help keep this podcast growing. So I appreciate all those reviews you guys leave. Also, share with your friends and family. Tag me in your stories on Instagram. I want to hear that you are finding value from this podcast. So you guys, without further ado, here is Zach Bitter. All right, Zach, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Uh, Boy, you are a man after my own heart because you are a fat adapted endurance athlete. And for my people that don't know who you are, can you tell them who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, so uh, I guess I would consider myself like a endurance athlete, coach and podcast host. That's kind of where I spend a pretty big chunk of my time uh i kind of got interested in a running at a really early age and through that exploration which is pretty gradual i wasn't like trying to like be a big runner in middle school and high school to the degree that you can see some specialization happening uh but enough to stay interested in it and then by the time i kind of got to college and really dove into the sport tried to learn the ins and outs of it and things like that i started recognizing kind of where my interests were within running and that kind of led me to ultra marathons so I ran my first ultra marathon in 2010. And then I was at the time I thought like, I do, I'm going to do like a 50 mile race. And then I I was 24 at the time. I thought, well, I'll do one just to kind of see what it's like. And then I probably won't do another one until I'm like in my thirties. Cause I, my thought was, I'd focus more on just trying to run a fast marathon or something like that. And I ended up liking it enough where by that same time, the following year, I decided just to jump all in with ultra marathons train specifically for those. So I've been kind of angling that direction from a training side of things the last 10 or so years and along the way but way I've been able to break world records win some national championships compete on team USA's 100 kilometer squad Uh, so I went from kind of doing it as a passion to kind of creating my career around it which has been kind of a cool journey for me specifically and and yeah so uh, uh, you know I'm 35 I still love it still think I got my fastest races ahead of me so I'm excited to kind of see where the next few years take me and kind of keep, keep pushing, pushing as hard as I can.
0: So I'm super interested in this because, um, you're kind of from the low carb camp. When did you get into that part of things? Because, uh, you're a world record holder. Did that happen while you were low carb or like, when did this all come into fruition?
1: Yeah, it did. So I kind of got interested in, so I'm probably fairly unique in the sense that I haven't ran a hundred mile race without being low carb. I, I, I went low carb early in my ultra marathon running experience, uh, where I had done 50 miles was the furthest I had gone when I first switched. So for me, it made a lot of sense. One was, uh, I had some, like, I, I would consider them minor health issues. And I don't know so much that the diet was the actual like mechanism that cleared these up whatever I had going on uniquely to myself it happened to uh jive better for me so it, I stuck with it and it continued so I didn't really kick it so to give you some context was there like historically I'd always been like a really good sleeper pretty consistent energy levels throughout the course of the day didn't really have like big kind of roller coaster rides of high energy low energy anything like that uh until like late 2011 Uh, mid to late 2011 I started noticing that I'd wake up a lot during the night Uh, wasn't sleeping through the night consistently uh, felt like I would I had plenty of energy to do my workouts especially if I would do them in the first thing in the morning but then like through the afternoon it would just be like you know I'd be feel fine and then I'd feel like I could take a nap and like anywhere essentially and at the time I was a full-time teacher so that wasn't really a Great option, obviously. The kids are the ones who are supposed to sleep in the class, not the teachers. So, (laughs) so I I didn't really know what was going on, other than I had a pretty pretty crazy lifestyle, as anyone would probably attest to. Training, you know, sometimes upwards of twenty hours a week, working a full time job, and things like that. So, I don't know that those scenarios were necessarily that unpredictable. But I was loving the lifestyle in the sense that I was just getting familiar with ultra marathons. I was excited to do it. The training and racing was going pretty good, all things considered. Uh, So I didn't necessarily want to pull back on that. Uh, I wanted to try to navigate it a different way. And at kind of around the same time, I started learning a little more about like a low carbohydrate approach. And uh, I decided during one of my off seasons, late 2011, just to kind of check it out and see firsthand, like what exactly it felt like get that experience to see like what panned out, what didn't, um, specifically to me. And uh the I didn't necessarily anticipate this, but uh the first week I started sleeping through the night again, like straight through the night, didn't wake up at all. So that was kind of like a little bit of a sign to me. You know, as someone, I mean you understand this as well as anyone. Like when you're working out hard, It's great if you can nail workouts, but if you're not sleeping and you're not recovering from those workouts, then you may as well scale back on the intensity, scale back on how much you're putting in in order to be able to recover from it, or you're going to end up having a margin of diminishing returns where you're actually getting worse versus better despite doing more work. So to me, that was a big sign of, okay, if I can keep this going, this is going to allow me to do the training I want to do and uh, perhaps even increase it at times when I need to, and so that was that was good um i also noticed that just my energy levels throughout the course of the day were much more stable so you know i wasn't kind of having these peaks where i felt like i was shot out of a cannon i would, but they weren't being met with these dips either where i felt like i could lay down and take a nap at any point it's just a little more like kind of straight line uh which i preferred uh especially when you're, when you're running long races like ultra marathons you don't ever want to be shot out of a cannon <laughs> you want to be steady as can be as long as possible So uh, for me then, it was kind of after that first, say, like month or so doing it, and I started reintroducing some structured training, it was, okay, how do I navigate a periodized training schedule, which is what I would describe how I kind of prepare for events. I'll do like a big foundational element where I'm doing a lot of kind of what you consider like aerobic threshold or high end of easy work and just really getting efficient there. But ultimately, I'm going to go through the full cycle of short intervals, tempo runs, long intervals, ultimately start building up my long run and things that are very specific to the race I'm doing, whether that be the train or the intensity. Uh, But those different kind of phases of the training offer different lifestyles, essentially. So then it was like, well, how do I take at the time what was a pretty strict ketogenic diet uh, to make this work within the context of what I'm trying to do? Because I mean, there's just to say that there's good evidence of any nutritional strategy for running, you know, hundred miles or in what most people are going to take 20, 30 hours to do is uh, it's, it's essentially non-existent. Like we're extrapolating forward at best. In most cases, there's some small studies and things like that, but really it's, it's like, it's very much an individual exploration at this point. And a lot of it comes down to, uh, you know, your own experience on long runs and races and how you're able to digest food during them, how you're able to tolerate that. Like, you know, the way I like to describe it is you got folks who can essentially eat four or 500 calories an hour and seemingly not get any digestive issues along the way, stay pretty even, not notice any abnormalities in their day-to-day life doing that. More power to them. You get folks like myself uh, and, and a lot of people actually in the this- I think the most recent position paper stated that 60% of ultra marathon single day athletes are going to experience some sort of like digestion issue or uh, some sort of like, you know, disruption from the fuel they're eating. And some of that could just be poor practice, but um, you know, some of it's just so, you know, not everyone is really capable of mainlining five to six, (laughs) four to 500 calories an hour for hour on hour and end and expect that to go well. So for those of us who are in that boat, I think the strategy needs to be skewed a little more towards being a little more efficient with how our body utilizes fat as a fuel source. And since the intensity has to come down when you're out there for that long, it's not as big of a variable to have to try to get over. Like it would maybe be say, like if I were trying to run my fastest marathon or my fastest half marathon, where the intensity for those are going to be so oxygen demanding that you wanna make sure you're as efficient at converting that as possible, which you know, pulling glycogen out of a, out of a functioning muscle is gonna be very quick versus breaking down fat, you know, converting that to ATP and going through that whole process, just more steps, it's so just more oxygen demanding then. So you kind of need uh, a combination of either a low enough intensity to let that process happen without it necessarily negatively impacting you or have other variables that improve some of which you likely do not know about just because they're, like I said before, there's just done a lot of research with ultra marathon stuff. Uh, to great, to, to be a, b- a bigger improvement or a bigger variable adjustment comparatively to whatever kind of negative or step back you're going to take. So I guess the easy way to kind of look at this stuff, any of these things that I'm talking about, I think all these things, whether you take a high carbohydrate, moderate carbohydrate, low carbohydrate, strict ketogenic approach to ultra marathon, they're all likely going to come with a balance of pros and cons. And those pros and cons are going to be unique to the individual circumstance, the race, uh, all sorts of things. So you have to eventually kind of just sit down and kind of figure out what is your, your kind of unique, your unique set of situations and kind of come up with where the, where the best starting point is and then kind of go from there. Um, you know, for me as a low carbohydrate athlete, I find it actually, a little easier to navigate this because when I'm working with people and myself, when I back, when I transitioned, you know, most people are just going to kind of find themselves at a moderate carbohydrate diet. If they just kind of go to the grocery store and grab the foods they're used to eating, they're probably going to find themselves in a moderate uh, carbohydrate standpoint. So a lot of people kind of have that experience already. So if someone comes to me and says, Hey, I'm really interested in doing a low carbohydrate diet for my ultra marathon. Uh, this is what I've done historically. Chances are, unless they had already tried low carb, keto, and they're coming to me to try to figure out like, what am I doing wrong here? What are some mistakes I am making? what's kind of like your strategy within the context of this? Then I'm, I'm kind of working with them from a, from a different angle where we already kind of have some answers to one strategy, at least. Um, so just kind of an interesting problem solving thing that I really like to kind of work with people with and play around with myself. And uh, and with myself personally, like, like I was saying kind of earlier before it does vary a bit. And I feel this is where I probably confuse people is like, they'll want to see what I'm eating during a race. And then they'll think, okay, well, that's what Zach eats all the time. But it's like, no, when I'm running hundred miles, that's a very unique experience. Maybe happens a handful of times a year at most, uh, you there's also off season where I'm not running at all. And then there's kind of base training where I'm running low intensity, but relatively high volume. Then there's the phase of training where I'm focusing on short intervals. It's like, that's a different exposure too. Starts phasing in strength work and things like that. There's a lot of moving parts there from the energy output and the intensity at which you're doing it. So I think like that all has to be taken into consideration. And that's where I probably end up falling more in the low carbohydrate camp or whatever you want to call it more consistently than I would say like a strict ketogenic Uh, Or like a zero carb type of an approach, which, you know, some folks are going to be a little more kind of hardline along those, like those parameters.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of things here that we could go a lot of directions. (laughs) We could go here with this, but, um, I guess my first direction is, is if you are training at a low with low carbohydrates, are you like setting more of like a zone two type pace? Um, something that is a little more, um, fat oxidative, I guess, than glycolytic. Uh, because at one point when your heart rate gets a lot higher, like you said, you're, you're struggling to con it'll start struggling to convert that a little bit. So is that, do you change your training paces per the kind of fuel that you're eating?
1: Yeah. If anything, it's probably more the reverse where like I haven't, I like, I say, okay, this is the string of workouts. I'm going to try to execute during this next block of training. And because of that, these are the fuel sources that I need to kind of start to like phase in. So I stay low carb even through the higher intensity phases of my training. It just goes up from say like maybe around 10% to 20 and maybe on the rare occasion, 30% of my intake. Uh, And a lot of it's just trial and error that I've done over the years where I kind of have found out if I want this string of workouts to go well, this is the pattern of eating that's working, gonna gonna produce the results that I've seen uh, or the best results that I've produced uh, versus an alternative. So, uh, the big thing that I noticed with myself personally is it's the timing of some of these things more so than it is the actual intensity of one given workout. So like, if you give me a week and you said, okay, in seven days, I want you to go to the track and go 12 by 400 meters, you know, at your VO two max and just get a really good short interval session. And in, I could bring, I could stay pretty strict keto. For all those days leading into that, and go out and nail that workout, just as I would if I were moderate to high carbohydrate. the The problem is if you try to start to build volume at that intensity, at a frequent enough rate at which you're capable of doing, that's where you tend to run into problems. At least for me, anyway. So let's say now instead of giving me that seven days, you say, okay, we're going to try to have. of your volume this week be at moderate to high intensity. So you're going to do some short intervals, you're gonna do some long intervals, maybe we'll have you do a tempo run, um, or something like that during the week alongside whatever kind of easy mileage you're running. That scenario kind of run weekend and week out is where I find when I stay very low carbohydrate, like ketogenic low, you get this kind of like scenario of what I guess you describe it as like kind of like a a downward sloping staircase of your, your muscle glycogen. And you eventually find a point where I kind of tanked out or I I went low enough where my body's like pulling back on what it's letting me do from a performance standpoint. So at that point, it just, I've, I've, I've done different strategies for that. For me, what I tend to find work better is just kind of increasing my daily carbohydrate intake a little bit uh, to a, you know, a little closer to maybe say 20% of my intake And, uh, I don't know if it's because I've been doing low carb for as long as I have that I have some efficiencies that adapted over time or what, but it just doesn't seem like I need much more than that to still be able to hit those workouts. Um, it's also probably a product of, I'm not spending an entire season doing those type of intensity workouts multiple times a week, either. I might be doing say like a four to six week block where I'm focusing on short intervals and I'll have deload weeks in there too, where I kind of re the intensity so it could be somewhat like that like i would have to go back and actually run my own self-experiment through like a real legit marathon training plan to see like what other like alterations i would need to make on top of what i do for say a hundred mile race um but ultimately i kind of get through some of those least specific to race intensity workouts earlier in my training plan to start moving on to things where i'm increasing my volume and targeting kind of goal race intensity which is going to pretty much peak out at like my aerobic threshold, certainly for a hundred miles, even if it's a flat, fast, controllable environment where, you know, for me personally, I've been able to run hundred miles in 11 hours and 19 minutes, that's still at or below my aerobic threshold. So that intensity, when I'm trying to really develop that, I don't really need to go much past 10% of my intake from carbohydrates, uh, because I'm just not dipping into my glycogen stores fast enough. At least that's what it's showing up on the workout results. Um, in in a manner in which it's I feel like I go and I can't execute a workout so for me personally since like we don't have great research and it is kind of a little bit of an individual like uh thing I think when it comes to nutrition with ultra marathons I find that like you kind of just got to follow the results and if the results are panning out then that's great and if not then that's the time to kind of make adjustments and make changes and that's kind of how I've navigated low carbohydrate in general, I tried to stay away from like, well, I need to be strict keto, or I need to be this percentage of carbohydrates, because that makes me fit within this program. It's more like, what do I need to do to make sure my big things are happening properly, like hitting my workout splits, preparing for my race, having good races, ultimately, but also keeping an eye on the things we talked about earlier, like, am I sleeping well, am I recovering from one workout to the next, because it doesn't do me any good to increase my carbohydrates by say 50%, nail a couple of workouts, but not recover from them and not sleep well. Um, which again, is going to be individual to the person. I mean, I know folks who have no problem doing that. So, uh, some of this I think is just kind of a a case for just individual nutrition for better or worse.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, for myself, anecdotally, like this is totally me working on me, but I feel like when I started when I be started experimenting with keto and fasting and all these things, I started to notice that I don't make lactic acid like I used to. Mm. I used to get my legs would be the craziest pump on when I was cycling. And uh, when I started fasting and things like that, the more and more in ketosis I got, the more and more easy it was for me to go further and like do some of these things. And I mean, there's a lot of people that say that, you know uh when you're fueling with carbohydrates it's a pretty dirty fuel and so you build that lactic acid because that's a byproduct um what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah so like blood lactate is kind of an interesting one because for one like your body can actually use that so it's 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 more of a process of can it use it quick enough uh if i'm understanding it properly like the where where you're going to get like that 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 pain like you're describing, I think is when you kind of like overrun the system and you just you can't clear it fast enough. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're producing so much that you can't clear it, then you're going to have like all the byproducts from that and your body's going to have to clean that up. So yeah, it could be that it's a cleaner, it's a cleaner burning fuel to burn fat. And that the trade-off may be that like, you just can't burn as many matches during workouts and things like that um i think there's still probably some stuff to learn about that especially as we get into the longer distance things where you know some of that byproduct is maybe a bigger a bigger issue uh long term but it is very interesting cuz i think like that's a, a common enough anecdote and i mean a lot of this stuff is anecdotes but uh you know i'll have folks myself included will stay lower carbohydrates and you experience less soreness the following day or less like residual fatigue after a big workout and things like that. Um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what that is. Uh, cause it's like, it's, there's so many confounders as is the entire nutrition industry, uh, that like, it could be a situation where you, let's say like, for example, I take someone who's just kind of following a pretty like basic unstructured diet And because of that, there's, you know, a fair bit of just like random junk in there that could get cleaned up, but it's not causing any major issues, at least in the short term. And then they decide, okay, I'm going to go low carb. And when they go low carb, they end up just cleaning up their diet in general. And that ends up kind of producing the situation where their body is bouncing back and recovering quicker because it was more about the removal of something than it was the addition of something, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm kind of interested in that is because... Um, although I don't condone a fruitarian diet, especially from a long-term, like, I think that would be just a recipe for disaster in the majority of people. Um, but I mean, there's folks that do that and they have that kind of similar report where like, Hey, I just did this big event and I bounced back right away. The next day I'm like totally mobile. I'm not beat down. I'm not fatigued and not destroyed from it. And it's like, you're literally doing the exact opposite of what I'm doing. (laughs) So I think there's maybe something to that, but, uh, but I think at this point we probably have as many questions as answers. And uh, for me personally, I like that. I think that's cool that there's uh, you know, that we're on a frontier of something and who knows what'll get discovered over the years as more research gets done, more money gets pumped into it and that sort of stuff. When, when you can actually do some bigger, more in-depth things and kind of explore it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like all of this. And and I like something else that you said back there. And that was like, you know, trying to eat enough calories and then still be able to digest them because when you're running your body, I mean, most people don't run in a parasympathetic state, right? So, uh, and it's a pretty common knowledge that when you are doing, having an output like that, that your digestion definitely slows down. And that was another really interesting thing for myself because I would have a hard time. Like if I was really putting out hard and I would bring in calories, I would just want to puke. It was horrible, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so that's another place where I found a lot of success because I wasn't having to bring in those calories as frequently. Uh, and so I feel like a lot of times also, not only are these people making it so that they they're not performing right. Cause your body was trying to put its energy towards digesting this food. But over time, I feel like they're actually hurting their digestion because they're not being able to properly digest this food when they're training all the time, throwing this food at themselves. Does that make sense what I'm saying there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's when, when I look at like the amount of fueling that one could do for a hundred mile race, I just imagine if that was all laid out on a table and I was asked, try to eat this over the course of the day it would be hard to feel good eating that just sitting there, much less trying to run 100 miles. So to me, it's like, I think there's a path forward with that for some people, um, at least in the short term, I think there's maybe some reason to be cautious around that type of a behavior uh, from a long term standpoint, but that is yet to be seen. Um, but the the thing is with it, I think like where, where, where you run into issues with a lot of folks is it is going to be a coin flip. If you're going to try to hit say 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, or the recommendations for ultra marathoners is 50 to 70 grams per hour for, um, for like a single day race. you know, there's going to be people who that, that just doesn't work for, and you can make an argument that they didn't properly train their gut to be able to tolerate that. But then you have to ask themselves, well, what do they need to do to properly train their gut to tolerate 50 to 70 grams of an engineered fuel source. Although most ultramarathoners, to be fair, are going to be encouraged to do kind of like a combination of like engineered products like you know gels, sports drinks, and things like that, but also have some solid foods blended in. And that should help at least a bit with the digestion. Um, but I mean if you if you if you're asking someone to train their gut, you're assuming that their entire focus is performance. And that they have the workload capacity to actually do that. So, like, if I look at someone, say, like, Elud Kipchoge, who's the world record holder in the marathon and, and likely one of the, if not the best marathoner to ever run, he, he can probably afford to train his gut because he's going to be training 100, maybe 140 miles a week. Uh, you know, he's, like, got probably 4 to 5% body fat. Uh, the, the guy's not trying to lose weight uh and he's racing a very interesting event that takes him about 2 hours to do which is going to be structured in a way where he can almost maintain his lactate threshold for the entirety of that race which is insane because the average person could maybe maintain that intensity relative to them for about 60 minutes so it's just this insane comparison for most people who are probably doing the sport if, if, for a variety of reasons, they probably enjoy it as a way to stay in shape and stay active, so they picked it. Um, you know, maybe they do, to a degree, want to try to get the best race out of themselves. I think most people do, regardless of whether that's in the front of the pack or the back of the pack. But you know, they're also juggling a lot of other things, like you know, maybe they only have 10 hours a week to train total they have a full-time job, they have kids. And this this is most people's reality. So for that person to be able to train their gut and essentially go for like a 60 minute easy run and have a gel during it just doesn't make any sense from just an overall health and nutrition standpoint to me. And I think the person who described it best was this Dr. Mike Nelson. He said, really, I think there has to be some middle ground here to a degree. And it's got to be kind of circumstantial based because he's like the way he described it, if you go like really high carbohydrate, it's like, it's like, the same thing as if you had like a sports car parked in your driveway in neutral and you're just revving the gas pedal. It's like, you're burning this like high octane fuel source and not going anywhere. Cause if you're eating super high carbohydrate, you're asking your body to burn that fuel source for a variety of different things, not just the high intensity stuff. If I went up to say 70% of my intake from carbohydrate, that's going to take front seat. So if I'm consistently eating that spreading it out through the course of the day, you know, I'm going to be burning higher rates of carbohydrate, even sitting on the couch than I would be if I'm reducing that carbohydrate to a degree. So to some degree, I think it kind of comes down as like, what do you want your foundational uh, energy expenditure to come from? And if you're an ultra marathoner, you want that to be fat because there's just no way you can eat enough during a hundred mile race to make up for the energy deficit. So you need to be able to burn high enough rate of fat, or you will have issues with uh, glycogen defense. Um, The question becomes, where does that end up for you personally? And then we're kind of back to what I was talking about before. You get the folks who can tolerate 400 plus calories an hour. They can defend their muscle glycogen pretty well, even at pretty poor fat oxidation rates doing that. You get people who can't. You get someone who's like, they start getting a queasy stomach if they start going north of maybe 200 calories that person is going to have less muscle glycogen defense capabilities from an exogenous carbohydrate source. So they may need to be burning higher rates of fat at any given intensity from a ratio standpoint, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. And I mean, like just using myself as an example, I I'm kind of one of those that keeps it pretty low carb. I kind of do like a cyclical ketogenic type approach Mm -hmm. and like loading for a hundred plus mile race I'll be pretty much ketogenic all week and then I'll have a carb meal the night before the race. I feel like that restores my muscle glycogen so that I have that higher glycolytically demanding stuff available, but my body is trained to be fat adapted at the same time. So I'm kind of able to use both fuel sources. I feel like better than the average Joe because I'm, I've trained myself to go both directions.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I think the other thing to to lean into there is you can spend say 36 hours before your final dinner, bringing back a little bit of the carbohydrate to do what you said to stock up uh, or to to top off your muscle glycogen, your liver glycogen. And then you're going to go to bed that night and you're gonna have an overnight fast that's kind of just built into your routine. And that overnight fast coupled with avoiding carbohydrates the morning of the event, starting the event and getting that engine kind of revving for the first 45 minutes or so uh, in that overnight fasted state, that abs, that carb absent breakfast first 45 minutes of training, you're going to be burning high levels of fat at that point, probably even if you're, you know, skewing towards moderate carbohydrate. So at that point, then you can start bringing in small amounts of carbohydrate during the event itself and kind of stay on top of that muscle glycogen throughout the course of it. Cause even if it is, um, because people ask me this, like, well, why do you even have carbohydrates during a hundred mile race? Uh, well, because it's long enough where like even if my ratios are super in favor of fat uh i'm still going to be burning small amounts of muscle glycogen and you couple that with 10 11 12 hours you get yourself to the end of the race and you could very easily deplete that muscle glycogen down to a point where your body starts defending it which is going to just raise your perceived effort at a given pace uh and obviously you don't want that at the end of the race you want to have that perceived effort feel as good or maybe even better because you're excited to be getting close and closing in on it. Uh, So I've always just found like small amounts of carbohydrate. Once you kind of get going, kind of keeps you in that position where, you know, I'm not tempting stomach distress fate because I'm still keeping it, you know, for me personally, usually around 40 grams or lower per hour. Um, It's, it's pretty rare that I usually if I get any sort of digestive issue at that rate of fueling, it's more to do with like something I screwed up with hydration or the heat or something like that, which takes a little bit of playing around with, but, um, you know, once I kind of got, get, get that accounted for, there's really no scenario uh, you know, minus food poisoning that I'm going to get a stomach issue from 40 grams of fuel per hour. Uh, And, and that kind of ensures that I'm not going to risk the glycogen defense error of say getting to mile 80, dipping low enough where my body's like, Hey, uh, we're going to spare the rest of this for more important things than you trying to win this race. Are you trying to run X time (laughs) and, and making it more harder myself than it needs to be?
0: So I got a question for you then. How do you feel about exogenous ketones?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I've been fortunate. I've been able to talk with Brianna Stubbs a bit. Who's one of the leading kind of ketone researchers, exogenous ketone researchers. And it, it seems like right now there's some promising or at least a promising study that is, uh, looking at those as possibly a good recovery tool. Um, I don't think any of the studies that I'm aware of have indicated that it's necessarily going to be a performance booster as in like an intra race fuel source, but it's hard to know because with something like that, you know, you do have a risk, just like anything you put into your body during a race, you have the uh, potential like stomach irritant type of thing. So it's hard to know, like, where the line gets drawn there between maybe it was helping, but you had a gastrointestinal issue from it, therefore you lost more time than you gained kind of a situation. Mm hmm. Um, So I think there's a lot to be learned at this point. I don't know that there's any evidence that would say like you should definitely be using this during an event and that's going to produce X results. I think there's maybe some convincing stuff, at least now as kind of a recovery tool. So having like some exogenous ketones with protein or something like that post hard workout or post event would maybe be the more practical use for it at this point in time.
0: Interesting, interesting. I always like hearing what everybody says about these things. I mean, I use them on occasion. I like them, um, but I've always wondered if the elite people are. I know some are, some aren't. So,
1: yeah, I know people who've used them even during races and things like that. And essentially, like they're probably looking at it as, I know from experience, it's not going to cause a stomach issue for me or anything negative, because they did their homework and they tried it out in training. So for them, it's like, well, only off chance that this does actually help. I'm going to be ahead of the science. And since it's legal and since it's not causing me any ill effects, you know, why not? So I can appreciate that too.
0: So how about this then? How do you feel about like smathotone training and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think if anyone does a thorough job there and really maximizes their potential within like a maximum aerobic function program, they're going to find themselves in a position where whatever they want to peak for, whether it be a 5k, 10k, half marathon, marathon, ultra marathon, hundred mile, 24 hours, whatever. They're in a great spot to kind of uh, specifically prepare for that event. So I'll use that quite a bit. Uh, Actually I'll use it actually kind of twice, but it's somewhat just circumstantial. Uh, First is I just like to start having that really, really fit. So I'll do it maybe a little differently. I don't do like 180 minus my age to come up with a number. I just target my aerobic threshold and try to do a, as much volume as I can recover from at my aerobic threshold to kind of try to bring that pace down. So that pace at, for me, for me specifically, my aerobic threshold is about 155 beats per minute. So like if I'm getting down, usually to a low six, maybe dipping under six minute mile pace at that heart rate, in a really controlled environment, then I'm pretty well developed in that. And then the next question is, like, how long can I tolerate that? Like, can I do 30 miles a week at that intensity and still recover, or can I do 70 or 80? Because, like, 70 or 80 is just, you know, more, I'm, I'm more efficient or able, or I'm able to tolerate a bigger workload with that. So then once I kind of have that in place, then it's like, okay, well, what race am I going to do? And what do I need to do to kind of peak for that? So for me, I think there's still good reason to be doing some short intervals and things like that. It's just, they're not going to be specific to the races I'm personally going to pick. So I'm going to do them a little earlier in the training plan. So I might get through that phase where I'm really working on like my maximal function or my aerobic threshold. And then I might start implementing some short intervals, some long intervals, tempo runs, and then eventually probably even come back to that. Cause my hundred mile intensity and pace isn't too far from my aerobic threshold. So it, it kind of becomes flat runnable hundred specific training uh, again near the end of the plan. So I start kind of, I kind of revert back to that then if it is a hundred miles I'm doing, if I was going to say do a 5k though, I would still, I look at some of that maximum aerobic function stuff. I mean, that's what cross country kids should be doing in the summer before their season starts. Then when their season starts, they're super aerobically fit. So now their coach starts throwing short intervals at them, tempo runs at them, you know, races on the weekends and a couple during the week, maybe, uh, at them, and they're getting that intensity and that intensity. And that is going to be specific to the event that they're trying to peak for. So they're getting that kind of that very specific workload that they need to be targeting to fine tune their race day intensity, their race day specifics and things like that. So you kind of have to let the racers kind of do uh, guide, the order of operations to a degree. But I do think there's still value for for that kind of variety of stuff included in the plan. Um, For like, especially, I I like to use the example of short intervals because it's the one that I think is the most polarizing compared to like maximum aerobic function and certainly the most polarizing compared to 100 mile intensity. And the reason you do something like that is because by doing those short, fast intervals, what you're doing is you're kind of raising the ceiling or the potential that you have on your aerobic capacity. So, you do those. And then that allows you to kind of break through what would maybe been a plateau previously. Uh, And the way to maybe think about that is even if I'm racing at a low intensity, there's this thing they call like, like a speed reserve, which is like the amount of like the, 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 the amount of time or intensity that's going to kind of between the pace you're racing at and what you could maximally put out. And if you have a big speed reserve, you just have more options to make mistakes because there's, you're not, pushing up against that red line quite as, quite as much. And it can go back to nutrition too, because if I have a really big speed reserve, then even re- regardless of diet, I'm going to be burning higher rates of fat, lower rates of carbohydrates at the intensity. So that's the other interesting thing. Like if you take someone with a much bigger engine than me and you give them like, say a moderate carbohydrate diet, and you give me a low carbohydrate diet. If their speed reserve is, much larger than mine, which it should be if they've got a bigger engine, if, if they're doing the right work anyway, then they might be able to eat more carbohydrates than me, but still burn the same ratios of carbs to fat because they've got that bigger energy or that bigger engine. And therefore they're racing at a lower intensity than I am. Um, and there's just a lot, it gets kind of muddy at that point. Cause it's not necessarily as linear as you got a big engine. Therefore you're faster. There's a lot of things that come into play where like how long can you maintain an uncomfortable pace from one person to the next? How long can you stay at like your VO2 max before you start falling off? And you might have someone with a really big engine that falls off early or someone with a really like a average or lower engine who can, for whatever reason, just grind. And I mean, you see these folks in the sport too, where, you know, you'll get someone who's got like a low VO2 max um, versus someone with a high one. And then the person with the low one still wins, but it's just because, whatever reason, they, you know, either trained better or, you know, was able to push through the pain and all these other variables that sometimes get kind of missed when we're just looking at the paper and that sort of stuff.
0: Awesome. I like that. So, um, I guess what's, I, I'm cu- curious now, what's the furthest race that you have run?
1: The furthest I've run is 125 miles in, in one event. So it's actually, it's kind of funny because ultra marathoning, is it's it's a long sport in the sense that like it's been around for a long time I think people think it's relatively new because it's had a pretty big upswing the last decade or so uh, but it dates back to the 1800s uh, in in some of the formal formal manner and I mean there's events that are like six days we see how far you can run in six days and like 24-hour events where you can see how far you run in 24 hours and the world record for that's like 188 miles which is just like a ridiculous amount of <laughs> running for a 24-hour window Uh, and and all sorts of other stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, I focused mostly on hundred mile stuff. Um, I've taken a kind of a stab at a couple of 24 hours with with essentially no success so far, but it is an event that I'm really interested in. I'm hoping to kind of, uh, solve and have some good races within kind of later in my career.
0: That's awesome and amazing. like it's so it's so cool. I am not a runner, I'm a cyclist. I've tried to attempt running. I'm just I don't know if it's for me, but uh, you do have a big run planned. Um, is it a fundraiser that you're gonna be doing from San Francisco to New York?
1: Yeah, so when I first got into ultra marathon running, I was I caught wind of this uh, it's essentially more of a challenge. It's not really a race because they don't really have a bunch of people line up and see who gets to the end first. But there's like a few different routes that essentially go from either the West coast to the East coast. So they call it the transcontinental run. And over the years, you know, people will document their attempts, record them and things like that. So there is like precedent set from like records and things like that. So I was like, that's a super cool project. I'm going to do it someday. And at that point it was just like, kind of like, uh, just something kind of in the back burner more or less. Uh, that I wanted to do, but I didn't really actualize it in terms of picking a date and actually deciding to pull the trigger on it. So it kind of sat there for the better part of my, my career until a few years ago, I met this guy named Justin Wren, who uh, he, he has a charity that he, he started called Fight for the Forgotten. And uh, his, his mission as a humanitarian was to identify the most forgotten people on the planet and see what he could do to help them. So he f- identified this tribe in the Congo Which is essentially right in the middle of Africa, and they basically had no human rights and were spending a ton of their manpower or or woman power in this case because it's usually the women that were doing the water water uh, gathering. I mean, they're spending all day doing it, and when you think about it, it's just like a really interesting uh, and and just polarizing like thought that you have uh, like. I think like, you mean, know, here in the United States, we have all these opportunities that we can kind of take advantage of if we're aware of them and, and time them right. But if we had to spend all day just to get water, we'd have no choice but to do that. You'd have to let all the other opportunities go along the wayside because if you don't have water, you're not gonna be able to function and you're not gonna be able to take advantage of those opportunities anyway. So like he wanted to try to make sure first things first, we need to work with the local government, make sure that anything we give to them doesn't just get taken away because that's one of the problems with just throwing money at these problems is Mm -hmm. there's a lot of times there's there's you know there's power in places that you maybe would otherwise not want it to be and and that can come at the cost If you just throw the money at them then they just it might bring more problems because now all of a sudden they've got resources that someone else wants to take from them so he's got he worked with the local government made sure it was in their best interest that he helped the pygmy tribe and uh his first thought was, okay, we need to get these folks wells so that they have clean, reliable water. So then they can start focusing on developing other things. So over the years, he's been able to build a ton of wells for them, which has turned into them being able to buy land. Um, Because previously they were essentially living on top of their own burial mounds because they just got basically pushed into this one really tiny area. And so now they have more land, they have wells, they have clean water. So now they're building farms and permanent housing and things like that. Uh, so I just thought his his mission was really cool. And his, uh, his story was really cool. And it gave me kind of a purpose or a reason to do the Transcon project. And I reached out to him uh, a few years ago, asking if he'd have any interest in, you know, partnering up with me for that. And he's was super excited about it. So we were actually going to do it last year. But then with COVID and everything, I had to kind of put it on pause for a bit. So here we are in 2021 now. And uh, I'm looking to do it in September where I'll run from San Francisco to New York, uh, trying to do as many miles as I can fit in, <laughs> in per day. The record is 42 days, six hours, and 30 minutes by a guy named Pete Kostelnik, which for those of you uh, who aren't math geniuses and can just run those numbers through your head really, really quickly, that's like 72 and a half miles a day. So it's an incredible, and, and Pete, Pete's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Uh, So you'll never hear him talking about his exploits, but he's also done this project. He's the man when it comes to these multi-day things. So he did this project where he ran from Keys, Alaska, all the way to the Florida Keys. So he essentially found the longest possible route in the United States. (laughs) And he did that one unsupported. So like when I do this transcon run, I'm going to have an RV following me and like a chase car behind that RV, giving me whatever I need along the way. And as soon as I'm done for the day, I'm going to take a shower and go to bed. And eat as much as I possibly can in the in in between time. For and he did the same thing when it is Transcon project. But for his keys to keys project, he did that unsupported. He pushed a stroller, and he still averaged over fifty miles a day. So it's like
0: holy cow, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I've been fortunate to know him and talk to him and, and some of his crew too to kind of help fine tune some of the logistics behind this. Cause for me, you know, I've done all single day ultra marathons to date. So this is very new. This is like a scenario where I can't go out and completely exhaust myself on one day and expect to be able to get up and do that again and again and again for 40 plus days. You got to be able to kind of find that line that you can push up against, but not go past so that you have something else to give the next day and the following days. And you can maybe take some risks near the end, but you gotta be smart in the early stages, in the middle stages. So kind of figuring out how to, you know, go about that is, is kind of a big piece to my kind of training puzzle right now. Figuring out how to, you know, eat 10,000 plus calories a day for six plus weeks is another project that I'm gonna be working on in the next few weeks to try to figure out exactly how that's gonna look and what's gonna be more um, digestible versus, uh, you know, intolerable. And all the stuff that kind of comes with that sort of thing, but I'm excited to, to do it. And I, I can't think of a better cause to do it for. So that'll be a big motivator to kind of keep me, keep me going. And when I feel bad about myself and why I'm doing it, I'll be thinking about, you know, Justin and all the stuff he's done for other people who have no choice, but to essentially suffer day in and day out. And that's, I think, a pretty big motivator when you have the choice, whether you want to suffer or not.
0: I love that. That's, that's amazing. And, and you brought up something there was with the recovery. And that's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, how the heck do you just do that day after day after day and not like have a recovery day? That seems like it's going to be a tough one.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely like, there's definite, obviously things can happen that are outside of my control. So like the perfect scenario likely never happens. There's always going to be something that pops up and I mean, take Pete, for example, he got maybe a little too aggressive early and uh, tweaked uh, the tendon that kind of runs down his shin into his foot and and uh he had to take a full day off so he averaged 72 and a half miles a day with a day off uh so he actually probably was averaging closer to 75 miles a day but um i'm going to try to avoid that but we'll see you know it's like any of these like kind of record chasing things i think are interesting because for one it's like it's hard to compare one effort to the next because you have other variables that are going to be different from one person i could hit bad weather through the sierras or you know better weather through the sierras and things like that um but i'm also like you know if pete doesn't run 72 and a half miles a day i don't have his project to learn from and i've learned a ton from his project so like this is definitely a scenario of like if uh if i break his record or if inevitably someone comes along and breaks his record that's just how records kind of go uh it's going to be because of things that he added things that others have added to like, this is the right way to do it. This is the mistakes you can make and someone getting to the point where they can fine tune it enough where, you know, now there's very few mistakes made very efficient stuff, but yeah, the recovery is a big one. It's really, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's an injury prevention thing. Like if you can stay injury free, that's, that's the key because everything's going to be slow. It's just going to be, can I continually be slow versus having to take big chunks of time off because I hurt myself and now I can't move at all, much less move slow. Uh, so that's the way I'm kind of looking at that, uh, recovery. I think like, you know, obviously protein is going to be important. Staying on top of nutrition. I can't inherit a massive calorie deficit continuously and expect it to go well. So that's going to be important for me. I think there is probably some value in with projects like this, especially, I think this is where like low carb, if not even a strict ketogenic diet really shines. Um, just because it's going to be more of a reliable fuel source on something this low intensity and this unpredictable at times. Uh, so I'm probably going to skew maybe a little lower carb than I would for say a hundred mile, uh, side of things and try to see how that goes. But but yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, the, you know, there's another guy, Dean Carnassus, who's done it. And he actually had some, I believe it was Colorado State University or one of the universities in Colorado did a research project on him. And they actually looked at kind of his like muscle breakdown and how that worked. And it seems like with a lot of these really long things, what happens is you have this kind of like gradual descent and you kind of hit rock bottom somewhere around like a week or so. And you got to get to that point. And mentally stay strong because after that your body kind of catches up and just says okay and you actually start kind of trending back upward so your body kind of responds and figures out what it needs to do and then as long as you're bringing in the resources you need and getting enough sleep at night then you start trending in a more positive way so you kind of hit rock bottom and not let that end your project and then hope for things to get better and not get worse <laughs> but it is interesting how that works because you would think it was just going to get continually worse and continually worse but um, I guess that's not necessarily the case I I, I anticipate being sore every day but I think it's going to be like kind of manageable like you can push through it as long as you stretch out and get moving and you just stay focused
0: man well I can't wait to follow that journey hopefully everybody you're doing that in like September so hopefully you'll be putting some stuff out on your social media before then so that people can follow that (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm planning on doing a pretty good promotional like push before we start, especially just to kind of get eyes and, and ears on Fight for the Forgotten and hopefully keep that momentum through the project itself. So I'll be doing as much social media activation during it as I can get away with. I mean, one of the things about this is like I'm I'm leaning towards kind of like a walk run strategy where I might run a little faster than P averaged at times, but then I might walk slower. Pete, I was pretty sure, he was pretty consistent. He just ran kind of like a consistent pace basically the entire time. I think my body might respond a little better from some variety where I'm running maybe a little faster than he did, but also walking more frequently than he did. And during those walking breaks, I might just jump on IG Live and check in and just kind of share how things are going for a few minutes and, and uh, keep that kind of, that momentum through that sort of stuff.
0: That sounds totally, totally awesome. So if my listeners want to come find you, where do they do that at?
1: Yeah, so kind of the one stop is my website, which is ZachBitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. And from there, you can link to anything from my coaching, to my podcast, uh, to my social media channels. I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Instagram is at ZachBitter, Twitter's at ZBitter.
0: Nice. I love that. Well, I hope they go find you. I'll put all that information in the show notes too, so that they can look you up and look into what you're doing and then follow you for your big long run.
1: Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much. It's, uh, it's been a blast to to chat with you and dive into running and nutrition and everything else.
0: Well, I certainly appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Zach I know I certainly did. It's the funnest part of my podcast, being able to bring people from all walks of life and different thoughts and different training modalities and different ways of thinking and trying to understand it from their level and learning from that. And I think we're all so unique and individual that being able to take a step back and try to find our own perfect piece to the puzzle is extremely important. So loved that talk with Zach please remember that I want to hear from you guys. I want to know if you are finding good stuff in these podcasts. I want to know if there is somebody that you want to have on that you maybe love and I don't know about. I want to know what I can do to make this podcast great for you guys. So please chime in. Shoot me a message from my website, www.connynightingale.com. I would love to hear from you and get your opinion on things and make sure that I am putting out content that you find value in. So I appreciate you guys as always, and I look forward to joining you again next Monday.